If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open up to Jeremiah 29 with me. And I am going to put it up on the screens, but if you have a Bible, I always want to just encourage you to bring that with you to church. If not, we have a couple. You're welcome to take one of ours. I tend to read from a little bit different translation than the ones that we'll provide, but uh, that's why I'll put it up on the screen. But love for you to bring those Bibles. Um, I don't typically title my messages, but the title this morning, if I would give it one, is Clarity. Clarity. And I want to start by posing a question for you to kind of consider. What do you think the purpose of your life is? It's kind of a question that maybe you don't uh, think about too frequently because life is chaotic, but really think about it for a second. Why do you think you exist on this earth if you're fortunate enough for the 80 or 90 short years that you're going to have? What, what purpose does your life have? I've thought about some of the things that our, per our lives are kind of typically filled with. I mean, is it to work for 40 years so that you can retire in golf? Is that the purpose of life? Is it to work 40 or 50 hour weeks so that you can live for the Memorial Day long weekends and barbecue and drink light beer? Is it to have babies and carry on your family legacy? Is it, I don't know, to buy stuff so that you can fill your house with new furniture and new gadgets and help Apple continue to be one of the most profitable country, or countries, almost, uh, corporations in the world? You know, is, is your purpose in this life to, to go green and to save the environment? Is it to be a Republican or a Democrat and change the political atmosphere? It, save the world through politics. Is it to make a lot of money so you can wear nice clothes? I mean, what is the purpose of your life? Is it to build a career or a reputation? I mean, these types of things that we kind of spin our lives around. And I want you to really think about that. What's the point of your life? What point does your life have? None of the things that I've listed are bad. If you're pursuing any of those things, it's not bad for you to do that. But really, is the combination of all of those things, the combination of all of them put together, is that enough to satisfy or even justify your existence? Is that all there is? Is that the point? I want us to look together at these verses from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. And, and I want to suggest an answer to this question. What purpose does your life have? And I'm going to leave it up to you, uh, you know, to discern whether my answer to this question is, is truth or not. Um, I think it is, or I wouldn't be here this morning. But let me read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And if you continue on through Jeremiah, one of my favorite passages, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, is in here as well. But this is a very poignant piece of scripture. And I want to set the scene a little bit for what's going on here so that we understand the context. Around 587 B.C., 
the last shred of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah, living primarily in the Jerusalem area, was overtaken by the Babylonian conquest of the Middle East. And in an effort to control the lands that they had conquered, the Babylonians removed large portions of the population, particularly those people that they saw as being strong or intelligent or influential. They removed them out of the area where they had lived, where their families had lived for generations, Israel, and they replaced them with settlers from Babylon. And the Israelite captives were brought to the capital of the Babylonian Empire, this, uh, the city of Babylon, as sort of these pseudo-prisoners. And the whole point of this displacement was to rob the Israelite people of their land and their culture, their heritage, and their religion so that they could more effectively assimilate into the Babylonian Empire and essentially become Babylonian. Their goal, the Babylonian goal, was to rob the people of Israel of their heritage so they would, in time, become Babylonian, forget their history, forget who they were as a culture and as a people. Rather than waste energy like some nations did, policing people in the far reaches of their empires, like the Romans did, the Babylonian process for subjugating the nations they overcame was to bring the people into the heart of their empire, seduce them, brainwash them, influence them with their Babylonian culture so that in time they would become Babylonian. And for the Israelites, I would say that this was a particularly horrendous way to kind of slowly kill their culture and heritage. And here's why. Because for centuries, the Israelites had believed that they were incredibly different from their neighboring nations. There were some very significant things that they believed and held true as a culture that set them apart from the neighboring nations around them. Israelites primarily, first and foremost, were monotheists. They believed that there was one God, and they lived around other nations that believed in a plurality of gods. They were pantheists. Their religious views influenced not just a portion of their life, like some people do with religion, but it influenced their family life, their social laws, their dietary regulations, and pretty much every other aspect of their life. The hours they worked, the days they worked, what they did with their free time, all of it. And most importantly, at the heart of their heritage and their belief system was this idea that they were called to be a people separate and apart from the cultural norms of the other nations that surrounded them. And they were proud of their heritage, proud to be called Israelites, proud to be God's people, and proud to be different and distinct in the way that they lived their lives in contrast to the other nations around them. And God had even commanded them. I think in this day and age, this is an incredible command. God had even commanded them to have compassion on foreigners, to have compassion on sojourners, people who would travel through their land, the poor and the helpless, to care for the widows and the orphans. In that day and age, that was unheard of. You didn't care for people who were weak and helpless. And indeed, God had called them, I believe, to live radically different lives from their neighbors, to truly be set apart and to worship him with all of their hearts and only him and to remember his promise that he would bless the world through Israel. That was the significant promise, their identity, that they would be blessed to be a blessing. Isaiah 49 verse 12 says, I will make you as a light for the nations, 
that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And that was the core of their identity. God warned them then that in this identity, his divine protection of their nation would last as long as they put him first and honored him and worshiped him. And what happened is, over time, the people of Israel began to slowly forsake God. Rather than being a nation that was a refuge and a light in the midst of the cultural darkness that surrounded them from nations like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they began to slowly adopt the culture of their neighbors, even when it stood in contrast to God's ways. So they began to forsake their heritage. And as a result, after several warnings through prophets, and we see that in Scripture, an attempt to get his people to turn their hearts back to him, God allowed his chosen nation to be conquered and taken into captivity by Babylon, by, by the Babylonian Empire. And shortly after this exile became, be, uh, began, right before we get into this verse from Jeremiah, a few false prophets rose up. And they told the people of Israel in lies and deceit that God had no intention for Israel to stay in captivity in Babylon. That in a, sh a few short years after their displacement to the capital of the Babylonian Empire, that God would redeem them and bring them back to Israel. And so they shouldn't make plans to stay long. They shouldn't put down roots. They shouldn't build homes. They should live like gypsies, ready to leave at any moment. And so God speaks through Jeremiah to the people of Israel, and this is what he says in opposition to the false prophets. Let me read it again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease." But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I think it's a fascinating passage because here we have God telling his people who are supposed to be different and set apart, distinct from every other culture thriving in this day and age, that their well-being lies in the well-being of the city of Babylon. A city that in other parts of the Bible, we hear condemnation, scathing words because of their godlessness and their fierce opposition to the God of the Israelites. And now he's suddenly saying, I, pl I placed you there and seek the welfare and the well-being of this city. He tells Israel, get comfortable. Make Babylon feel like home. You're going to be there for a while. And even more than that, he tells them, mix and mingle. Care for the welfare of this new home. Let it feel like home for you. Now the question is why, and, and ultimately, the Israelites would be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, which is quite a while, a couple generations at this day and age. Now why? Why would God suddenly say, care for the city of Babylon where I've sent you? I think his purpose in putting the people of Israel in Babylon, it wasn't just to teach them a lesson about fidelity, about putting him first. I think that was a part of it. Again and again we see through scripture God wooing his people back, seeing them stray from him and his commands and, and wooing them back, saying, just turn, turn back to me. I'll bless you. I'll be with you. I'll be present. 
So yes, to some extent, I think he was teaching them a lesson. If that's what you want, then you can have it. Go be Babylon. I'll let you dwell there. And you can have plenty of time to figure it out. But I don't think that's the whole reason. I believe that the true welfare of Babylon could only be promoted if God's people were spreading the word about God himself to an unbelieving nation. If they were intentionally living there with a purpose to tell Babylon, to tell the Babylonian people about this great God that they served. Remember Isaiah 49, 12. I just read it. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That was God's promise to the people of Israel. In other words, he placed them in exile in Babylon to remind them of their blessing that they would be a light to all nations, to give them opportunities to share the stories of God's faithfulness to his people and to draw others to faith in the one true God. This was a nation whose founding essentially was built on the exodus from Egypt where God revealed himself in unbelievable, incredible, and unheard of ways. And here they had an opportunity to live next door to Babylonian people and to share that message. And so I have to ask, what other reason could there be for God to tell his people to seek the welfare of their enemies if he had no intention of them hearing this message of his grace and his love? No intention of rescuing them for 70 years. It doesn't take that long to learn a lesson. I don't know if you've experienced that yourself, but usually I just need a couple minutes to reflect on it, and I've got it down pretty good. God wanted his people to share the message of grace, of a God who reached out, rescued his people, and brought them to this promised land. And I read this passage, and I love it for two reasons. The first one is that it makes me think of Maricopa. It makes me think of Phoenix. The unfortunate truth is that I, I joked about this at the beginning when I first stood up, but I have had conversations with people here in Maricopa and, and both directly, straight up, and indirectly, I have had people tell me that living in Maricopa feels like living in exile for them. They wish they didn't live here. They hate it here. They feel like God sent them out here to live in the desert and, and it's been a horrendous experience for them. For me, that's not the case. I love it here. And I personally have a very grandiose vision for what the city of Maricopa is going to look like someday. And even Phoenix. One of the things that drew me out here was hearing the statistic that Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the U.S. now. And I believe in another decade, I, w I was at the zoo one day, and they have, the, for some reason, a history of Phoenix up there. Phoenix grew a million people every decade from the 1950s until the mid-2000s. And I believe that someday it's going to be like that again. And Phoenix is going to be a cultural hub for the U.S. That's why I believe God called us here. I believe God called us here to plant a church because at some point in the future, Maricopa is going to be a great city in Arizona, like Phoenix, like Tucson, like Flagstaff. That when people talk about Arizona, they'll talk about Maricopa. I believe that. And I believe that God called me and my family here, specifically placed us here, to seek the welfare of our city. Seek the welfare of the Phoenix area. Casa Grande, Tucson. As far as I can drive in a couple hours. 
And I believe, honestly, that while waves and waves of people have left Maricopa, I think God is bringing in a fresh group of people who he intends to use for the welfare of the greater Phoenix area. People who aren't just living here purposely, but have been called to his mission to reach this place. And I honestly believe that many of you sitting here in this room this morning have been brought here for that purpose as well. That's why you're living here. And you may be thinking, man, I'm trying to get out of here. But you don't know what God's going to do yet. Or maybe he's just going to commission and send you to Glendale. And you're supposed to do it there. But I believe that's what God is doing in Maricopa. And I believe that the true purpose of your life, you really want to know what the purpose is, is to pray to the Lord on behalf of Maricopa, on behalf of Phoenix, and to find the welfare of your family as God reveals himself here. Like it says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And maybe you won't live here for the rest of your life. But this is your planet. This is earth. This is where you are going to live. And somewhere, I believe, God has a place where he is calling you to pray for the welfare of the people who live there and to seek it. Uh, if I can steal a quote from, the, from some Anglican literature that I came across, I would say our purpose here is to make known by word and deed the love of the crucified and risen Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit so that people will repent, believe, and receive Christ as their Savior and obediently serve him as their Lord in the fellowship of his church. I think I have a slide for that, if you don't mind throwing that up, Ron. Let me read it again. To make known by word and deed. Nope, just kidding. I'll get there. Okay, I'll read it again anyway. To make known by word and deed the love of the crucified and risen Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, so that people will repent, believe, and receive Christ as their Savior and obediently serve him as their Lord in the fellowship of his church. I think that's why God has you here. And Maricopa for us, Babylon for the Israelites, they're really just microcosms of God's greater purpose to take the message of a risen Savior to the ends of the earth. It happens to be Maricopa for me because this is where I live. But ultimately, God is doing that. He's taking this message to the ends of the earth. And it's a bigger and more ambitious vision for humanity than any other that's ever been revealed. And I believe it's a mission that God is calling you to be a part of. Now, the second reason I love this passage is that it reminds me of the incarnation. It reminds me that the church, Maricopa Springs, and the church in all of its forms, wherever it meets, is meant to be incarnational. What does that mean? The word incarnation, all it means is that God came in the flesh. I always think of carne asada, because carne means meat. God came in the flesh. He came in meat to be present with us. Jesus, who is God, eternal, a spirit, and boundless in his power, he set all of that aside and he wrapped himself in frail humanity to come and live with flesh and blood. He set aside his rights and his glory 
to bring mankind the message of God's love. That's what incarnation means. And then we, his church, we're called to be incarnational as well. God called the nation of Israel to be different, to be set apart, to remember that they were his people and to be different. And unfortunately, what we see today, I believe, is way too many Christians who just stop there, who live set apart. They involve themselves in church activities every single day of the week, right? Small group and then Bible study and then men's group and church choir, etc., etc., etc. They put their kids in Christian schools. They only listen to Christian music and they only have Christian friends, which to an extent is good. You need support like that. They're great at being set apart, but that's it. They neglected the fact that God gave Israel the mandate that they were supposed to be a vehicle through which God would reconcile the world to himself, like it says in Isaiah 49.6. Israel was supposed to be a nation that reflected the goodness and mercy of God so his salvation could reach the ends of the earth. And he sent them into the heart of Babylon with an incarnational mission to represent God for as long as God would have him stay there. And this is the mission that he gave his church and the mission and the goal of Maricopa Springs, to go and to make disciples of all the nations. You know, sometimes I, uh, most of the time, I hate the fact we don't have our own building because I would love to do things like small group. I would love to do things like community get-togethers, etc., but at the same time, sometimes I think uh, it's great that we don't have a building. It means that we don't have any sacred space to retreat from the world because I don't think we're meant to live our lives out and away from the world. If you offered to donate a building today, I would take you up on it. But I'm just saying, sometimes I think it's a blessing because it helps us remember that it's not us and them. It's not a sacred space and a living space. We don't have that place. So it's our homes, it's our neighborhoods, it's our places of work. We don't have a place to hide from engaging with the world. We're definitely called to be different, to live radically different lives than the secular culture. But I think we're also meant to live our lives in close proximity to godless and unbelieving people so they can see God through us and turn to him in worship and surrender. Isn't that a great idea? Let me throw that other quote up on the screen for you now. The author and pastor John Stott, I think he puts it well when he says this. We are all committed to the mission of the church. Every one of us who's a believer. We believe that the church has a double identity. On the one hand, we're called out of the world to belong to God. And on the other hand, we're sent back into the world to witness and to serve. Moreover, the mission of the church is modeled on the mission of Christ. He himself said so in John 20, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We're like victims of a shipwreck. And we've been rescued and pulled out of the water by Jesus. Only to be encouraged to jump back in and to drag others to the boat who are drowning. Help them find their way to that rescue boat. That's what we're called to do. And the incarnation means that the church is called to live out that mission of Christ in the world. 
It means that Maricopa Springs exists not just to be a refuge and a retreat from the world for Christians. To some extent, yes. But to be a refuge and a retreat, ultimately, for the world through Jesus. That's what we're here for. And that's what I believe you are here for. I honestly believe that. And it's ultimately the eternal purpose and the calling of every Christian to be set apart for the sake of helping others understand Christ. Because our world is perishing. Just look around. And Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is why Maricopa Springs has at least a 30-year vision to be here in Maricopa. You might not believe it looking around the room now with 20 people sitting in here. 31. (laughs) But honestly, that's the vision. And we'll be here, even if my heart isn't still beating. And I hope, honestly, that every decade that passes between now and 30 years from now, God gives gives us another decade of vision for our church here in our communities. And honestly, we may not know exactly what we're doing. We may not have the most polished vision plan or plan of attack, but I believe that if we progress towards this goal of reaching people with the good news, that Christ came in the flesh and died to redeem sinners like you and me, God's going to do some incredible things in and through our church. And I hope you'll stick around to see it. I think he's going to grow you and me into more mature disciples. And he's going to blow our minds with the kind of things that he does, with the people that he brings to find salvation through Christ at Maricopa Springs. Now, we're in this series, Triple Dare. Today, we're starting the series, Triple Dare. And the whole idea is to dare you to take some further steps to join in the mission that God has for our church in reaching lost people. We're going to get into those dares more specifically in the following weeks, but I want you to understand why. Why am I going to challenge you to take these steps? Because it's a critical mission. It's what God has called us to do. Why our church exists is for that purpose. And it's why God's church has endured for two millennia. It's to reach lost people, to grow them into fully committed disciples of Jesus. And as I mentioned earlier, if my uh, teaching today had a title, it would be Clarity. Because I want all of us to have some clarity about the real purpose of our lives here on earth. It wasn't an accident that God created you in the 21st century in America, with the kind of skills and gifts and talents that you have. It's not a coincidence. It's intentional, perfectly planned out. And you may be sitting here thinking that the purpose of your life is the next achievement ahead of you. You may be thinking that it's just to care for your children or to earn money or whatever noble pursuit you may be on. But the truth is, to clarify your purpose, you're here to seek the welfare of the city that God has placed you in. That's what he's called you here to do. And it's only a short time that you're going to be drawing breath. Are you going to take up that purpose? I believe that's what it means for us to follow God in incarnational living. 
Because I believe that the church is the incarnation of Christ. He left us with the mandate to represent him to an unbelieving world. Now we're going to turn to a time of communion, and, and there really is not a better way to lead into communion than talking about the incarnation. Because that's what the communion table represents. We remember that Jesus gave his very flesh and blood to redeem us from our sins. And in our sin and depravity, we're incapable of pulling ourselves up to the position of holiness and perfection where God is. We can't do it on our own. Our only hope was for God to enter into our reality, to step down from his glory, to become a perfect and sinless man. And ultimately, to die, to sacrifice his well-being for ours. During our next couple of worship songs, once you've taken some time to just converse with God, I challenge you, confess your sins before him. Receive his grace and give him thanks for the cross. Then I want to invite you, whenever you're ready, approach the table. We take communion by intinction, so tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, and you can just eat it right there at the table. And give God thanks for the incarnation of Christ. Because on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he told his disciples that in the act of his death on the cross, his blood would be poured out for us, his body would be given for us, so that we would have life through his death and forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. And he told the disciples they should break the bread and take the wine to remember the incarnation, remember his death and resurrection for our redemption, and to remember their new kingdom purpose as those redeemed and set free from sin through his sacrifice. Let me pray and we'll turn to a time of worship. God, I thank you for the cross where you sacrificed your body. You took upon yourself our sin so that we could live in relationship with God. And Lord, I pray that as we come to the communion table that our hearts would be moved to, to reverent awe of your grace. And Lord, I pray that the cross would draw us into this mission. Lord, this world is filled with hurting people, lost people, suffering people, people who don't yet know that you are a God of compassion and mercy and grace, available, ready, willing to lift us out of our circumstances and into grace and forgiveness. And God, I pray that as we come to understand that truth in our own lives, that you would draw us into this mission to bring that truth to those who don't yet know. And we give you thanks. Amen.